0: Nammihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. for Alison Balance aho Later on, William Ray introduces us to the power of fossil pollen for telling us about lost worlds. But first, I'm off to Scion to find out about biocontrol and the science of introducing one exotic species to control another unwanted species. Entomologists Tony Withers and Andrew Pugh are my guides And we're off to a very secure building.
1: Tony, can you tell me where we are and why you're rummaging in the freezer? We're in Scion's Rotary Insect Containment Facility. And to let you in here, Alison, we have to dress you from top to toe with clothes that you have (laughs) in the freezer. Yes, protective clothing, which we then freeze on our way back out just in case something's crawled onto you. Righty ho. If you'd just like to make yourself comfortable and pull on your booties over your shoes and pop on these overalls, then we'll be good to go on the inside.
0: And yes, frozen Tyvek overalls are cold to put on. But once we're all looking quite glamorous in our ballooning white overalls, we can proceed.
1: So Alison, this is the inner sanctum, we call it fondly from which our six containment rooms open off so behind each locked door is a different type of organism and most of them have to have some type of containment according to whether they're new to new zealand or we're examining them with a new to new zealand organism
2: it's the yellow
1: so there really is an airlock.
2: Mm-hmm, absolutely, yes. To keep negative pressure, so any organisms can't can't escape, and one door open at a time. Oh.
1: So, what is going on in this room? What's been going on in here over the last few years has been host specificity testing of a parasitoid from Tasmania called Edia denieris. And we've been evaluating this parasitoid to find out whether it would be safe to introduce into New Zealand for attacking the larvae of the eucalyptus tortoise beetle. So tell me about the eucalyptus tortoise beetle. It's obviously something we don't want. Yes, but it's been here for quite some time. It's one of the largest of the tortoise beetles, and they've all evolved to eat eucalyptus trees back in Australia. And because of the history of trade of logs and trees between Australia and New Zealand they quite quickly made themselves at home here. Not every eucalypt is eaten by the tortoise beetle but a lot of the ones that are really good and important for our pulp and paper industry and our solid wood industry and now also a growing industry for growing ground durable poles and the eucalyptus tortoise beetle just loves the leaves of all those species and we really need something better to try and knock its population back. So what does it end up doing, defoliating the trees? Yes it does. The larvae and the adults defoliate the leaves, so between two generations each year, one in the spring and one in the summer, they can do a lot of damage.
0: So tell me about the the thing of biocontrol, so you're looking to
1: introduce something else that's like a natural enemy. That's correct, yep, we went back to Tasmania and had a good look at the tortoise beetles over there and looked at all the natural enemies that were attacking it and we've already got now in New Zealand two little parasitoids that attack the egg stage and they're doing pretty well really, they're doing the best that they can but there's none of the agents that attack the larvae have made it to New Zealand so we needed to purposely introduce one of those. So, when were the egg control agents introduced? In the 80s.
0: And when did you start this project? Looking this project
1: we started seven years ago. And a PhD student who'd been studying the leaf beetles in Tasmania um, located and learnt a lot more about this parasitoid called Edia. And there's one in particular that we've been rearing here and host testing against a whole lot of Chrysomelid beetles that are in New Zealand. Okay, so you're allowed to bring some into New Zealand, but that's why they're in this containment facility, because you don't want them to get out at the moment. Yes, we can't let the wasp get out while we test it against the different beetles. So we brought, one at a time, we brought all our New Zealand beetles of interest into the containment facility and tested their babies against the wasp to see whether the parasitoid wasp would attack those little larvae.
0: So how many New Zealand species is that?
1: This was quite an interesting exercise. We had to look at the over 100 species of beetles that are in New Zealand and work out which ones were the most important to host test. So we ended up testing two pests and six species of weed biocontrol agent. So they're the beneficial beetles that have been brought into New Zealand to chomp on various weeds, such as Tradescantia and Heather and Broom. So um, Landcare research, though my colleagues who work there were very helpful in helping us to get colonies of those helpful beetles so that we could test their babies.
0: To make sure the, the ones that we've already introduced didn't get attacked. Yes, Fair enough.
1: there's no way they want to have those beetles munched on, so we were able to test those. But most important of all is the native beetles, and the more we looked into them, we found out that there's over 40 species of native beetle but almost nothing is known about them. In some cases, there's only been one or two individuals caught from someone who was out at night, who was perhaps beating ferns at the top of a mountain in, in the Southern Alps. And so we didn't know anything about their life cycle. We looked at the literature around some of the biggest beetles and we decided that the best place to go to have a look to see if we could find those beetles and bring them into the laboratory was to go to the South Island and Kaharangi National Park was looked like the most interesting. Quite a few beetles had been caught on Mount Arthur so that was the point where I talked to my colleagues Andrew and others and said right you are heading up into the mountains let's see if we can find any of these beetles. You got to go bush, Andrew.
2: <laughs> yeah, we went up for uh, for about a week into into Kahari National Park, lugging around not only the usual the usual hiking gear, but also, you know, our beating trays and all our collecting equipment. Some pretty long days as well as night searching. Explain to me what beating involves. We had a few plant species of interest uh, before we went, but not a lot of information. So we placed the beating sheet underneath it. And we literally whack that plant five times with, with this sturdy stick and see what falls off.
0: Right, and the reason the sheet is white is so you can actually see what you've yep, got on exactly, it. Exactly, yep. So how did it go? Did you start finding things straight away? Was it a bit frustrating?
2: Our first day we had a little bit of luck. We found a single larvae, but it was from a host plant, a hebe in fact, that was not recorded at all for what we were looking at, and so we thought maybe we're actually just barking up the wrong tree with this, and, and kind of kind of ignored it actually at first, um, and carried on searching other species. But then on the third day, funnily enough, right behind the um, the Mount Arthur hut we were staying in, we hit this huge load of finding about 200 larvae in this one site. And, I mean, our, our permit only allows collect to collect 20. Um, from each site, so we had to, to range further and go higher and, and longer.
0: How many were you trying to collect? What was your goal?
2: We needed probably a good 100 and to really do any sort of meaningful host testing back here in containment. And you obviously knew what they looked like?
1: Well, no, we didn't really. When Andrew first came across these black larvae, um, one evening I, I got a text with a picture saying, what do you think this could be? So I, I raced into the laboratory and, and showed our other colleague and said, do you think these could possibly be one of these native chrysomalid larvae? And he said, yes, I think they are. So then we sent a text back saying, yes, yes, collect more, collect more. But we did not we couldn't really be certain what they'd collected until they brought the larvae back to the lab and we were able to rear them through to adult.
0: So you just opened a large plastic box... Yes,
1: this is our little colony, laboratory colony of what we discovered to be called Alicaris, near or close to Tarsalis.
0: So does this group of beetles have a common name?
1: We've decided to assign a common name of our own to it. <laughs> because the host plant is Veronica albicans, which used to be previously known to us all as hebes. we've called it the Veronica leaf beetle. It's nothing official that's just it's a working title. Yeah, that's just a term of endearment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then what happened? You needed to get them reproducing in the lab so that you had diff- multiple
1: generations that you could work with? Well, I was I was actually able to work with the larvae that Andrew brought back, and we put them as precious as they were, we immediately put them into cages with these nasty parasitoid wasps to see whether they would get attacked. Some of them had to sacrifice their lives for science, which was a bit sad for them. But how
0: many ended up sacrificing their lives? Because obviously, what you were trying to do was to work out whether they were very vulnerable to this wasp. So That's you were right. hoping not too many of them died.
1: That's right. A few of them did die. Um, when we forced the wasp in really close contact with the larvae, some of them got stung. What it did was the the parasitoid didn't kill them, but when they had a little parasitoid larva inside them, they didn't pupate. So they were kind of stuck in a certain life stage, so their immune system must have recognised that there was something foreign inside their body, and it did affect them. So we had to euthanise those ones, and when we dissected them, we found evidence of the attempted parasitism. So that's called not being a complete physiological host for the parasitoid, but it was disappointing that the parasitoid, some of the individuals did recognise that they were a larva that was worth having a go at stinging.
0: So what does that mean in terms of your assessment of the risk to the native beetle?
1: Well, because they can't rear through on the native beetle, they'll never form a population that could adapt to or like the flavour of those larvae. So the only risk would be if an odd or a stray parasitoid somehow got blown on a wind gust up into the national park and happened to blunder upon one of these larvae. The risk is low, although it's not zero.
0: So that was a successful test as far as you're concerned? Well, it
1: was. I mean, getting some data that we could then present um, to the public and to eventually the Environmental Protection Authority, that was just so important. So these little larvae have ended up just being such a crucial part of our project. So you don't need them for the main project anymore? No, we don't, but because they've been in this room... We can't actually let these ones out unless we applied for special permission. So
0: what's going to happen with them?
2: At this stage, it's it's more of a, a keen interest in trying to work out a bit more about their biology and how they work. We put them in the fridge, seeing as they're a subalpine species, thinking that we might it's just a
0: bit colder up in the subalpine. Uh, yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, we thought we might sort of overwinter them and get them to to have a little have a little snooze over winter and then maybe bring them out in the summer and see if we could breed them. But what actually happened is within a few weeks they started laying some eggs and so we got even more offspring that we we didn't really anticipate.
1: Do you have any of those wasps I can have a quick look at? The only live parasitoids that we have at this time of year, because we're here in the winter, is they're all safely in their little pupil cocoons. These wasps, you pulled one out with tweezers. They're about fingernail size. They're black. We call it medium size, but it's it's quite a decent size parasitoid. It would cover your fingernail, but it's a very delicate. They are. They're very delicate, wasp. and they've got um, an orangey red head and a black body.
0: And they've got a very skinny
1: wasp waist. Yes, that's right. And the females have got a slender ovipositor, and when and they, that's what she lays the eggs. That's with. right. When she when she sees and smells a larva, that she recognises as her host, she'll run up to the larva and bend her abdomen between her legs and sting the ovipositor into the larva quite quickly but she has to maintain contact for about one second for the egg to pass down her ovipositor and into the larva and then she pulls it out and runs away and looks for another one.
0: So she can lay a number
1: of eggs in a number of different larvae? Yes, she's got hundreds of eggs in her, in her abdomen, all going well and she lives for a couple of weeks. So each female can do quite a good job of stinging a number of, of larvae, and that's, that's what we want them to, to be doing here in New Zealand. And the most outstanding feature for me is those very long antennae, so that's what she's using to help find the larvae? Yes, and they seem to be very attracted to the smell of the larvae that have been feeding on the eucalyptus. So when we put these parasitoids in with our non-target larvae, they showed almost no interest at all. Sometimes they walked over the weed biocontrol larvae and didn't even recognise that they were a larva. It was as if it was just a lump in the leaf. But, you, but even if we have, have some paropsis, the eucalyptus tortoise beetle excrement, some poo on our fingers from handling the tortoise beetles, from feeding them, if we put our hand in the cage with the wasps, the wasps get so excited, they'll come and land on our fingers and and either attempt to sting our fingers that are smeared in the poo, or they'll they'll be busy trying to find the larvae. So they're very tuned to the cues that the, the paropsis tortoise beetle provides. This photograph, Alison, shows the offspring, the larva of the parasitoid wasp, pushing out of the dead tortoise beetle body. So after they've consumed all the inside of the tortoise beetle larva, they then squeeze out like something out of that Aliens movie.
0: So pretty much the wasps are laying their eggs in a ready made food supply. Here you go, here's a nice thing that will be both a home and your food supply for you,
1: off you go. Absolutely right. Yep. The larva does all the feeding and the wasp just lays in there and and chews and it's feeds within the larva for about 24 days before the poor old larva starts feeling a bit the worse for wear, turns a strange colour, and then within a day or two, the little parasitoid grub pushes its way out.
0: Thanks, Tony. That was entomologist Tony Withers from Scion, and we also heard from Andrew Pugh. The proposal to introduce the parasitic wasp edia to New Zealand to control eucalyptus tortoise beetle is going to the Environmental Protection Agency and will be open for public submissions soon. *Ko te fakaronga mai kua kite tauta Hei e panakei tauta alfanui*. I'm Alison Balance. This is *Our Changing World* on RNZ National. And now, William Ray is off to GNS Science to meet Joe Prebble and discover how fossil pollen can be used to paint a picture of past ecosystems.
3: Let's go kind of have a look at this.
4: Cool. Okay. So Somewhere deep inside the bowels of the GNS Science Campus in Lower Hutt, there's a room full of filing cabinets.
3: We have this glorious old filing cabinet system. Where if...
4: Inside those farmers. cabinets are hundreds upon hundreds of slides... Thousands. And what's on those slides yeah. is... It basically just looks like dust sort of it on, it, on like the little, slide. A
3: little white dust on the slide. So there's probably a few thousand foraminifera on this particular slide.
4: These slides um, are the results got. of decades' worth of collection from all over New Zealand.
3: Can I just get you to start by just saying your name and position, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm Joe Preble and I work as a um, palenologist. Helenologist? Helenologist. Helenologist. T P- for pollen. Right. Okay.
4: Pollen is what's on these slides Joe Preble is showing me, but not just any pollen. The pollen in these filing
3: cabinets is millions of years old. Each, um, we start with a rock, a rock sample, a sedimentary rock that's been deposited in a lake or under the sea. We want to, d- to dissolve all the, all the rock away to get the, the fossil pollen out, so we put it in hydrofluoric acid, which is quite a nasty acid and dissolves away all the, all the silicate rocks, um, and then we put it in, a, in another acid a hydrochloric acid which dissolves away all the all the carbonate stuff so all the any shells that might be there and then we're pretty much left with the organic stuff
4: so is it like fossils where the
3: the actual organic matter has been replaced by some kind of rock or, or is this still the... these are these are more these are still organic if it hasn't been exposed to air for too long then it will get buried and the the organic particle stays organic so it's quite, it's quite exciting stuff then. It's basically the, the same thing that dropped, that dropped 15 million years ago. Wow. Um, and, and so what, what we have here is, is having, having extracted the, the pollen out of the rock, we uh, lay it onto a, a glass slide with a cover slip over the top and look at it down the microscope. Right. Um.
4: That's our next stop into Joe's office to take a closer look at this fossil
3: pollen. And helpfully we have a microscope right here. We have one that we prepared earlier. So if you have a look down, mm-hmm. down there, what we're seeing is things with lines on them, which are um, bits of leaf, leaf cuticle, oh, so the right. surface bits of leaves. There's a little fellow with a whole lot of arms coming out of him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a dinoflagellate. It's a algae that lives in the sea. Oh, really? So this sample is, um, or this rock was deposited, just off the coast of the of of New Zealand about three million years ago. Um, and on the bottom right there, there's a little triangular thing, um, which is a spore from from a tree fern. So, from just
4: these three tiny specks, you can start to get a picture of what was in the spot where these fossils were collected three million years ago. The dinoflagellate tells us we're in the sea. The fern spore and bits of leaf cuticle tell us that we're near a bit of coastline with a temperate forest. If we kept looking at the slide, we'd find more and more tiny fossils to build up a more detailed picture of the area. It's like a piece of music where one instrument comes in after the other and generates this rich symphony. New Zealand scientists have been putting together these fossil pollen symphonies for decades, faithfully recording them and filing them away.
3: Every time somebody looked at a fossil, they had a system where they wrote a page of where the rock was from, and then on the back side of the page they wrote what fossils they found. But in the last 20 years or so, we've been digitising all those, so now they're all online.
4: That must have been a very um, long and tedious job. (laughs) A long and
3: tedious job, but it certainly unlocks these thousands of slides on samples in a way that they certainly wouldn't be otherwise. And so now there's a bit more than a million fossil observations that have been taken from the last 60-plus years and are now online for anyone to see.
4: This database of tiny fossils lets Joe Preble do something pretty fascinating. He and his colleagues can put together fossil pollen timelines which go back tens of millions of years. They can actually see plants evolving and going extinct, and there are hard numbers to back it all up.
3: If you were to fly back and go and sit in in a forest 20 million years ago, You probably wouldn't tell immediately that it was different. There would still be trees that looked a lot like rimu and trees that that were um, looking like tawhai and and things like that. But, um, for example, there weren't any grasses really in New Zealand back then. Things like daisies as well. They were evolved and they were probably in New Zealand, but they became a lot more dominant in the the vegetation from about 15 million years. And that's telling you something about the climate? (sighs) So it's a difficult... It's, it's an interesting interesting balance between um, what is a climate effect and what is an evolutionary effect, and also there are a whole lot of tectonic effects and so um, as as the southern Alps started to, to rise maybe about ten million years or so ago that created a whole lot more um, niches where, where different plants could um, live as well and you can actually see that happening sort of as the southern Alps come up you can see the plants around them changing as we, as we look at our 2,000 fossil uh, samples from around the from around New Zealand. Closer towards the present, we see a greater diversity, a, gre- a greater range of um, different types of assemblages, reflecting a greater range of, of environments that are that are in the New Zealand um, around the New Zealand landmass.
4: Joe Preble has been most recently working with the Fossil Pollen Database to look at how plant life in New Zealand has changed since the Miocene, a period which began about 23 million years ago and ended about 5 million years ago.
3: The middle Miocene, so around 15-16 million years, the landmass of New Zealand was quite a different shape. There weren't southern Alps yet. It was sitting quite a few degrees further south, so somewhere at about the, the latitude of the subantarctic islands. So quite a long way south. Quite, quite a long way further south, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but despite that, there was still, even though it was, was quite a bit further south, there were still plants that were a lot warmer than what we see today in New Zealand. Fossil pollen that we see is, is of trees that and, trees and plants that are today more commonly found in, or maybe not absolute tropical, but subtropical. Yeah. Um, definitely, definitely a definitely lot warmer, warmer than, than we have today, absolutely. Yeah.
4: Scientists think the warm temperatures in the middle Miocene were partly caused by huge emissions of carbon dioxide from a series of enormous volcanic eruptions in North America, and global temperatures rose about four degrees in response. Over time temperatures dropped and the world entered a period of global cooling, which was bad news for the semi-tropical plants of New Zealand.
3: We lose a a whole bunch of pollen types and, and tree species.
4: Lose completely, or they just become rare? Yeah,
3: they lose. They we've we've lost completely since the since the warmth of the of the Miocene, fifteen million years ago. We had the vegetation we had was um, had a whole lot more tropical and subtropical as we've cooled over the over the last um, fifteen million years or so. Many of those species have become extinct in New Zealand.
4: The reason scientists like Joe Preble are so interested in the Miocene, and particularly the Middle Miocene. Is that it's the most recent time in Earth's history where global CO2 levels reach the same heights we're seeing today, thanks to human-caused emissions.
3: It is one way to see what a what a world looks like that is under a carbon dioxide levels mm. slightly higher than present. Of course, once we start looking at these, at this particular record on millions of year resolution, we're looking at a what we'd call an equilibrium. Response. So basically what happens to the climate after many thousands of years at that concentration of CO2. Mm. So it's basically,
4: you know, presuming that we don't bring carbon dioxide emissions under control. It's what we could be looking at in the long run.
3: On on the scale of hundreds and thousands of years, if the climate continues on its current path, or if the carbon dioxide continues on its current path, and the warmth continues, then yes biogeography changes. Plants yes. plants move.
0: Thanks, Joe. That's palynologist Joe Preble from GNS Science. And thanks, too, to William Ray, who produced that story. And that's the show. Thanks for your company. To listen to these stories again, or check out the written feature and photographs that go with each one, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash world and you can always catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science and of course you can also subscribe to our Changing World for podcast in all the usual places catch you next week but for now it's good night from me Alison Balance Matewa Botox cosmetic botulinum toxin A FDA approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if Botox
3: cosmetic is right for you